The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. So this is the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God, amen? Amen. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at our text tonight. Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we're very grateful to you for this letter. It's already been just a tremendous encouragement to study uh, this, Uh, tremendous encouragement to see your address to these churches, Lord. And and even though you give uh, commendation, it's also helpful for us to hear uh, rebuke and reproof and to consider ourselves in light of that. Uh, Lord, may we um, take heed to your word. Uh, May we take heed uh, to these warnings and to this... uh, and this rebuke now to the church at Thyatira and this reproof, uh, help us to heed uh, this as a warning to us uh, not to allow error in doctrine or practice uh, to be present in the church, for us not to tolerate compromise within the doors of the church or to be faithful to you in a practice of church discipline, to be faithful uh, to maintain our peace and our purity. And we're very grateful, Lord, for uh, the peace that you've given us, for the purity Uh, the doctrinal soundness that you've allowed us to enjoy. We're very grateful. We know these are gifts from you. Uh, Find us faithful, Lord, uh, endeavoring to labor, to maintain them. We know that we don't do that in our own strength. Uh, We do that in the power of the Spirit. We know also, Lord, that you use means. And so help us to be the the faithful means that you intend uh, to preserve your church, to love and to grow and mature your church, to embolden our faith and to increase our hope and our joy. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. And the title of our sermon this evening, An Intolerable Tolerance, this is part two, Revelation chapter two, verses 18 through 29. Well, good evening and welcome back. It's good to see you. We're continuing our verse by verse 
consideration now of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And tonight we plan to conclude our study of the Lord's address to the church at Thyatira from chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Uh, The author of this address, by way of reminder, is none other than the head of the church. Uh, referenced in verse 18 using terms that emphasize his omniscience, his judgment, his authority, his deity. Uh, The Bible says, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Our author, the one who addresses now the church at Thyatira, is the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands, the one who is given to be head over all things to his church. And he has just exposed now at the church in Thyatira a very dangerous, a very deadly tolerance that has marked that church. It's an intolerable tolerance, if you will, that threatens to destroy the church from within. It's not persecution now from without uh, that alone assaults the church. Uh, Thyatira has a problem within her own doors or within her own gates, so to speak. And the nature of their compromise, the, the nature of that deadly compromise is detailed then in verse 20 where the Lord says, verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And here it is. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce, she teaches and she seduces through her teaching, the Lord's servants. He calls them there my doulos, my slaves, to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. We know that those references to sexual immorality and that reference to eating things offered to idols is a reference to idolatry and the idolatry that the trade guilds were involved in in the city there at Thyatira. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is not unconcerned with his churches. He's not unconcerned with the health of the church or the maturity or the growth of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands. He is concerned with the purity of his church. He's concerned with their holiness. He's concerned with their worship. He's concerned with their doctrine, with their practice, and he's concerned with their perseverance. Being concerned for them, they have a woman now among them a woman who has slipped in unnoticed, as it were, who is teaching among the people of God, and the Lord directly connects this woman with the Old Testament figure of Jezebel, that notoriously wicked Sidonian wife of the apostate king of Israel named Ahab. Now, those figures, Old Testament figures, and we see that those Old Testament types, as it were, now embodied in these figures that have leaked into the church at Thyatira, so to speak. The church at Thyatira has allowed this wicked woman, a self-professed prophetess, to teach in the church. And through her teaching, she is seducing or she is leading astray the people of God, his doulos, into pagan idolatry. And that pagan idolatry expressed in terms of pagan practice, committing sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. And this compromising tolerance has now led to there being a group in the church who are considered her followers, her offspring, so to speak, and they have embraced her lies, and now this group is living according to her heresy. So the church at Thyatira has got some serious problems they've got to deal with. This is extremely serious. The Lord says, I have this against you. 
against you. The church has gone out through the front door, so to speak, preaching the gospel. He commends them for their work, for their service, their love, their faith. They've gone out to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And all the while, they've left the back door wide open. And the whore of Babylon is now in the church, spreading her wicked leaven amongst the people. And notice, the Lord certainly condemns the error. Uh, He says they're not to tolerate this wicked woman Jezebel in the church. He certainly condemns the error. However, it's not the error here that the Lord at this point sternly rebukes. It's the failure of the church to restrain the error. They have allowed this error to continue. Theirs is an intolerable tolerance. The church should be dealing with error in their midst. We have a process of church discipline. The Lord gives us clear uh, direction, clear instruction. The church at Thyatira, uh, for some reason, has allowed this Jezebel to continue to teach and seduce the Lord's servants. And we pick up in our text now with the Lord's response to this and his response to this circumstance in the church in verse 22. The Lord says this, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, those of the uh, the people there who are following her, I will cast them into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Indeed, verse 23, I will kill her children with death. And through this judgment, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each each one of you according to your works. To the rest... In Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Hold fast what you have till I come. Verse 21, the Lord has given this woman uh, and her followers an opportunity to repent. If you think about that with me, we don't know how much time he's given her to repent. Um, We don't know that. We don't know the conditions of his warning at that time, the circumstances of that warning. We don't know those facts. What we do know, what we do know is that despite the warnings and those warnings from the Lord in some form or fashion, despite ample time given for these people to consider their actions, this wicked woman and her followers have been hardened in their rebellion. And oftentimes that's the way that it works, isn't it? When someone is confronted in their sin, when you're confronted in, their, in, in your sin, there are two possible really responses that you can follow with. One is to be hardened in your intransigence, to be hardened in your sin. The other is to be softened in humility, uh, to turn in humility and in repentance and repent of your sin. Uh, this has had the effect essentially of hardening these in error in Thyatira, hardening them in their sin. Despite appeals to scripture, they apparently believe themselves to be right or to be justified in their actions. They are unwilling to humble themselves and submit themselves to the word of God. And they have continued now in an unrepentant fashion, despite warnings, they have continued in their godless, self-willed course, bringing harm upon the church, bringing harm upon God's people in the church, and the church at Thyatira has allowed it to take place. The church at Thyatira has allowed this to continue. This, brothers and sisters, is the reason for a biblical practice of church discipline. This is an example of why church discipline is so necessary and so good and so right. 
Church discipline is an essential of having a biblical sound church. I've heard it said that a church that does not exercise discipline is a church with AIDS. It's a church with AIDS. It has no means of fighting off infection. If you're not practicing church discipline, you have no means within the church to fight off error, whether infections of the head, infections of the heart, infections of doctrine or practice. The church must be committed to dealing head-on with the sin. And if the church is unwilling to practice church discipline or if there's no culture in the church whereby the church as a manner of its practice among its people practices church discipline in its formative sense or in its corrective sense, if those conversations among brothers and sisters are not happening as a regular practice of the church, if you never go from those first steps and second steps of church discipline on to step three and step four, if there's no general practice, regular practice of discipline in the church, then the Jezebels, the Ahabs, those in error, those in sin, will wreak havoc on the body and you lose your church. You lose essentially what is a biblical church in her sin. You have no means of fighting off infection. And the church ceases then to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ altogether. It degenerates into a synagogue of Satan. The Ahabs and the Jezebels have their way. You pack the church full of weeds. And what do we see today? We, we see that, don't we, throughout our country, all over the place, churches that profess to be churches, yet they do not practice church discipline, and the church is just packed with false professing Christians. Now, this rebuke from the Lord is not given to a false church, right? It's not given to a church that has been lost altogether to the tide of sin within its ranks. This rebuke from the Lord is given to a, church, a true church in Thyatira, but it's a true church that is under assault. Now, this church has work to do. Most of the so-called churches that we see today are not true churches, right? They're not true churches with sin problems. They weren't constituted as true churches to begin with. Right? There was a faulty understanding of the gospel or a faulty understanding of sin at the very beginning. There was an unbiblical view of regeneration, an unbiblical view of conversion at the very beginning. They started off with decisional regeneration, so to speak, or ask Jesus into your heart from the start. And from the very beginning, they've been packing the church full of weeds. It wasn't a true church to begin with. And that so-called church that's not practicing discipline is not a true church now, right? And many, many, many churches, that's a description of what those churches are like. It was constituted as a social club for goats, and it remains a social club for goats. And the best thing that you can do in a circumstance like that, the best thing that those who are a part of a so-called church like that, the best thing you can do is to get out, right? Come out from among her, says the Lord, be separate, touch no unclean thing. What accord has Christ with Belial? Years ago, a young man who attended one of those uh, goat clubs, uh, told me that if they actually practiced church discipline there in the way that I was describing to him, he said they would be doing it all the time and eventually would run everyone off. And he's right. <laughs> I entirely agree with him. You're exactly, you're exactly right. They had never practiced church discipline. They were constituted under a false premise, constituted under a false gospel, constituted under a faulty understanding of regeneration or of conversion. It's not a church. And so what was the church then at that time? It was a social club packed full of weeds. 
Thyatira is a true church, and there's much to commend in Thyatira. Uh, the Lord commends, in verse 19, commends their works, their love, their service, their faith, their patience, their works at the last greater than their works at the first. But this church at Thyatira has been inexcusably negligent in dealing with the sin of this Jezebel. Maybe they felt that it was somehow unloving to confront her. We often hear that as an objection to a biblical practice of church discipline, that somehow it's unloving. The Lord knows what is loving, right? The Lord has given us good instruction. It's not loving to allow her to continue in her sin. That's what's not loving, right? It's not loving to the church to allow a Jezebel to teach and to seduce God's people away from the Lord. That's not loving. Are we to esteem Jezebels more than we esteem the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Are we to esteem Jezebels more than we esteem God's people? No. We need to do what the Lord has called us to do and deal with those in sin in the church, right? It's loving. It is loving to go to your brother and say, brother, I believe that you're in sin. Here's the reason that I believe that, and I'm calling you to repentance. That is loving. That is necessary in the Lord's church. We've got to have people faithful to do that very thing. Maybe they thought, you know, let's, let's give her some more time. Let's see if she comes around. That's often a recipe for disaster because things don't get better. They get worse over time, and it's often also a code for cowardice. We just simply don't want to deal with it at this time. Let's put it off as far. Let's kick that can down the road as far as we can. Maybe we can simply ask her to leave. And then she goes down the road, joins another church, and takes her error to another church. Is that what we want her to do? No, we need to deal biblically with sin in our midst in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to deal with sin in our midst. The Lord has commanded us, and his commandments are good. He knows what is most loving. He knows what is most wise. He knows what is most necessary. And he has said that a biblical practice of church discipline is the loving and necessary way that we must deal with sin and error in the church. Someone, someone in Thyatira should have lovingly been in Jezebel's ear the moment that she first attempted to spread her lies. From the moment that she first said something in error, someone should have lovingly been in Jezebel's ears. And when Jezebel refused to repent, there should have been two or three with him in her ear as well. Their failure, their neglect, their cowardice, their unbiblical tolerance, whatever it is, has now led to the shipwreck of many souls who are now following after Jezebel, those whom God himself describes in verse 20 as my servants. Do you see? That is tragic. The church at Thyatira has responsibility. Brothers and sisters, you and I in this church, we have responsibility. You're not just my brother. You're not just my sister. You are God's. Do you see? I have responsibility to you and I have responsibility to the Lord. We've got to deal with sin. There are many now in Thyatira who've made shipwreck of their faith following after that Jezebel because the church has failed in their responsibility to love them as they, as they should with a biblical practice of church discipline. And now the church has what will certainly be a very painful split to deal with. What they need is not some mechanical, mean-spirited, critical, 
unloving assault on those who are in sin at Thyatira. No, it begins with faith working through love, speaking the truth in love. You don't go to your brother, brother, you're a sinner and I'm here to confront you in your sin. That's not the way to handle that at all, is it? We're to go in love and we're to speak the truth in love. And most of church discipline, a great majority of church discipline takes place in the first two steps without ever getting to step three, without ever getting to step four. Why? Because faithful, loving brothers and sisters take responsibility to do what the Lord is calling them to do. And when you hear slander, or when you hear gossip, when you hear of sin or error in the church, or somebody preaching or teaching error in the church, it's your responsibility then, as much as it is mine or any of your other elders, it's your responsibility too to address that one, speak the truth in love. Faith working through love is the way that scripture describes it. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we set out in love to do what he has commanded us to do. And here in Thyatira is an example of when the church doesn't do that. And you see what happens, right? You see what happens. Now in verses 22 through 25, the Lord then gives a two-part admonition in response now to this very severe problem in Thyatira. First, an an admonition to Jezebel and to her followers, and then secondly, an admonition to the rest of the church. Now first, consider with me what the Lord says to that Jezebel and those who have been led astray by her. She has preferred a bed of iniquity, so to speak. She has preferred a bed of adultery, and the Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her, I will cast into great tribulation. I think those words are significant. Those words, great tribulation, those words are employed here with an obvious double reference. That Jezebel has led those who follow her into idolatry. Uh, Idolatry is often described in scripture as adultery. We've seen that in the Bible frequently in the Old Testament. And as it goes, the idolatry of the day was often, often involved sexual immorality with temple prostitutes or simply licentiousness, which often involves sexual immorality. And they have preferred, those who follow this Jezebel have preferred union with the harlot of this world and union with actual harlots in their sin to their supposed union with the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jehu was writing after Jezebel in 2 Kings chapter 9, if you remember that account. Uh, Jehu was writing after Jezebel, chasing Joram, the king of Israel. And Joram meets Jehu on the property of Naboth. Uh, Naboth was the one that Jezebel had murdered so that she could take his vineyard for her wicked husband, King Ahab. And Joram, on Naboth's field, asked Jehu, Jehu, is it peace? Do you come in peace? Jehu answered him, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Now he's talking about her idolatry and her rebellion. And the terms that Jehu uses in the Old Testament, the terms that the spirit-inspired author of scripture use are terms in keeping with harlotry. Idolatry is often referred to as harlotry or committing adultery. Um, In Revelation, she's referred to as the whore of Babylon. It's referred to as sexual immorality, an unfaithful 
an unchaste spouse. So Joram flees and Jehu puts an arrow between his shoulder blades, right? And he goes then to see or to chase down Jezebel now in Jezreel. What does Jezebel do? Jezebel puts paint on her eyes and adorns herself. Why would she do that? Why would she do that? Because she's a seductress. She's an adulteress. She's a harlot. Jezebel put paint, puts paint on her eyes, adorns herself. And she says to Jehu from the, wisdom, from the window as Jehu approaches, Jehu, is it peace? Is it peace, son of Zimri? And Jehu has her thrown out of the window. And then he goes in and has lunch. By the time Jehu gets done with his lunch, there's nothing left of Jezebel but her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. And why is that? Because the dogs have eaten her, as the Lord said that they would. This was a judgment of the Lord upon, upon Jezebel for her harlotries, for her witchcraft. Jezebel was that wicked Sidonian woman who through Ahab led all of Israel into Baal worship into Baal worship. This is how God views idolatry. And this is what's going on in the church at Thyatira. <laughs> they have serious problems in Thyatira. How can there be one moment of peace in the church at Thyatira as long as Jezebel has taken up residence there? How is that possible? It is not possible, right? They have got to deal with Jezebel. They shouldn't throw her out a window, right? But they should throw her out of the church, they should throw her out of the church. The Lord has given her time to repent. Verse 21, she did not repent. And rather than putting her out, the church has tolerated her presence among them. Well, she still needs to hear the gospel. You know, Jezebel needs to hear, she's heard the gospel. She, needs, she has failed to repent, refused to repent. We should continue to let her come to the church. She can sit on the back row. She just can't have fellowship. These are things that people actually say. She can still come to the church. She just can't take the Lord's Supper with us. That's what that, no. <laughs> she needs to be put out of the church. Verse 21, they've given her time to repent. They have not repented. The church is not the gathering place of thieves and heathen. The church is the gathering place of repentant, redeemed, former thieves and heathen. We're God's people here. We can pursue reconciliation if or when they're actually ready to repent, but until they are ready to repent, they should be put out of the church under discipline. The sexually immoral man of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you remember that account, is put out of the church. He's not sitting on the back row. He's not sitting on the back row. Revelation chapter 2 verse 22, those who commit adultery with this Jezebel will be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. The Lord's use of that language is significant. Great tribulation. The great tribulation is a description of that time period in which the church finds herself in the eschaton. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church finds herself in a period of great tribulation. We see that in Matthew 24, among other places. In Matthew 24, the, the Lord uses that language that we recognize from reading 
Mark 13 or Luke 21 or Matthew 24, language that we recognize to be indicative of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Lord uses that language of great tribulation to describe a period of tribulation at the return of Christ, such as, in the words of Matthew 24, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. It is a period of unparalleled, unsurpassed tribulation. And here, the Lord uses this language of great tribulation uh, upon the judgment of those who follow Jezebel in their sin. In other words, that terrible period of tribulation that was experienced at the sack of Jerusalem in AD 70, that terrible period of tribulation that those churches in Asia Minor went through in the first century that terrible, great tribulation that churches have faced throughout the church age is typological. It's a, it's a type, if you will, a shadow of a future period of tribulation at the return of Jesus Christ that could only be described as the greatest tribulation since the time began or ever shall be. It's a, a great period of tribulation that we see iterations of tribulation. We see types of that tribulation. We see shadows of that tribulation in every generation of the church until that period of the end where the great tribulation comes and will culminate in Christ's return. The Lord addresses to the church at Philadelphia. Look at Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 the Lord addresses to the church at Philadelphia, he references this hour of trial. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now listen, he's speaking of that hour of trial to the church at Philadelphia in the first century. Right? As if this hour of trial is near, okay? To, even to that church at Philadelphia in the first century. Uh, like the church at Thyatira, he warns them then at the end of his address to hold fast what you have until I come. It's the exact words that he uses for the church at Thyatira. Hold fast what you have until I come. Well, two millennia have passed since that time. Right? What's the purpose of this exhortation? If the great tribulation, that great tribulation that culminates at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age... If that great, great tribulation wasn't going to be upon them, then what's the reason for the exhortation? They're going to face great, great tribulation. They're going to face great tribulation. In Revelation 7, Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, you have the gathered church worshiping the Lord, and there are those in verse 14 who have come out of the great tribulation. Verse 9, after these things I look, behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of the church. That's a picture of the church gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lord. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? I said to him, verse 14, sir, you know... So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What are we to make? What are we to make of this back and forth? Right? There's, an, there's an obvious back and forth, if you will. There's an obvious double referent, if you will. A reference to great tribulation that churches may face in the first century, a, a reference to great tribulation 
uh, to churches throughout the church age, culminating, if you will, in a great tribulation at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this, ultimately, those references are a type. They're a foreshadowing of a time of great tribulation at the end, a period that is raging at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds to judge the living and the dead, right? There are types. Each generation, as it were, each generation will face its own iteration of the pattern. Each generation will face its own example, if you will, of a period of great tribulation and each of those birth pangs that culminate in the ultimate great tribulation. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ explains growing tribulation in just those terms. Birth pangs increase in frequency and in severity until the birth comes, don't they? Well, these are like birth pangs. They increase in frequency and they increase in severity. And then the period of great tribulation at the end uh, finally comes. And what does that do? What does that exhortation do? What does that, that reality do? It teaches the church to be vigilant. Teaches the church to be watchful teaches the church to be prepared. I'm sure that those who were alive at the onset of World War I believed that the Lord would come back soon, believed that the Antichrist was among, amongst them, believed that they were in the period of the Great Tribulation. I'm certain that those who were alive at the onset of World War II felt the same way saw the writing on the wall as it were and believed that they were in the eschaton, believed that the Antichrist was already present amongst us and believed that they were in a time period of great tribulation. And they were, they were. But it's just another iteration in the pattern, another iteration of the type that is pointing us forward to that tribulation at the end of the age, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will surpass all the others. 55 million people killed in World War II. 55 million, and the Lord says of that tribulation, it'll be greater than anything that's come before. It'll be greater than anything we'll ever see. Reminds the church to be watchful. Simply another type to be fulfilled in a yet future anti-type. A practical application of that is this, brothers and sisters. We are to live our lives in light of the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that teaches us. The use of that language, the, the presence or the reality of that pattern should teach us as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ to be watchful, to be ready, to be vigilant, to be pursuing holiness, to be preaching the gospel, to be loving the Lord's people and worshiping and loving the Lord, to persevere through trial, to be steadfast through difficulty. It should warn the church, train the church to be vigilant, to be watchful, to be steadfast, to be faithful. We are to live our lives in light of the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent now of your sin. Do not wait. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Repent now because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to render to each one according to his deeds. Do you see? Teaches us to be vigilant, to be watchful. The warning in Revelation chapter two to Thyatira is followed up then with a chilling promise to these who are unrepentant followers of Jezebel. Look at verse 23. He says, and this is, again, this is um, a warning of judgment. The Lord says, I will kill her children. I'm going to kill her offspring, her students, her disciples. I'm going to kill them with death. 
It seems a little redundant, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm going to kill them with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. He says, I am the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, right? He's the one who comes in judgment. And he says to them, I will give to each one of you according to your works. That's terrifying. I will kill her disciples with death. There is a death with which one may be perpetually killed. (laughs) Think about that with me, right? It's not merely killing of the body. It's not merely a killing of the body. There is a death with which one may be perpetually killed. The Lord said, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's a reference to the second death. Second death. Revelation chapter 20. Look at Revelation chapter 20. And look there at verse 12. Verse 12. Verse 11. John records verse 11 that I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. He gives to each one according to their works. Do you see? The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. They reaped what they sowed. They were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast, Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is to be killed with death. Do you see? Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They will die physically, and then they will die eternally. He will kill them with death. Revelation 2.23, as a result of that judgment, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds, searches the hearts. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in their judgment. When he pours out his judgment upon the wicked, the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in it. All the churches, all God's people, God's people who worship him for his righteous judgments, God's people who worship him for his righteous judgments, worship him that he is the one who searches the minds and hearts, giving to each one according to his works. God makes his glory known in the deliverance of his people, and God makes his glory known in the judgment of the wicked. God makes his glory known in the deliverance of his people amidst the judgment of the wicked. The deliverance of his people out of the judgment that he has prepared for the wicked. In the deliverance of his people from the iron furnace in Egypt, he tells Moses that he will pour out plagues among the Egyptians. And he says there, Exodus chapter seven, verse five, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see the same language. They will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. To the Israelites, listen, Exodus chapter 10, verse two, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. 
The Lord hallows himself in our own eyes when he pours out judgments upon the wicked. The Lord hallows, glorifies himself in our own eyes when he delivers us from judgment. To Israel in her sin before their victory over the Syrians, the Lord says this, Have you seen all this great multitude? Speaking of the Syrians, have you seen them? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today that you shall know that I am the Lord. Israel and her sin, Ezekiel chapter seven. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That phrase repeated over 160 times in the Old Testament. 160 times where God is described as displaying his glory, his power, his omniscience in the judgment of the wicked or in the judgment of his people for their sin. And now, used by Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2. What does that tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ? That, that phrase used of Yahweh in the Old Testament, used of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2. What does that say of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh. The Lord Jesus Christ is God, the Son This is how Yahweh makes his name great among the nations and makes his name great among the people. The deliverance of his people from the judgment that he pours out upon the wicked. Now these warnings, these warnings in the Bible are meant to preserve his people. You'll often see warnings of judgment against Israel. But what would God do if Israel repented? But we don't have to wonder. We see examples of that in scripture. If Israel repents, God relents of the judgment that he had planned against them. That doesn't mean that God changed his mind. God knew exactly what would happen. But God used the warning of impending judgment to turn his people from their sin and back to the Lord. The Lord often uses these warnings to preserve, not to terrify his people, not to send his people running for the rocks, crying that they would fall on their heads to hide them from the lamb who sits on the throne, right? Not to terrify his people, but to cause his people to cling more tightly to him, to flee to them, to him, to find their refuge in him. And this admonition is given to the church. Jesus tells them, verse 24, to the church at Thyatira, now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden but this, verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. Right, the Lord uses warnings, uses the outpouring of his judgment to cause the people of God to cling tightly to him to cling to him in faith. We need him. Do not depart the living God in unbelief. Do not depart. Cling to him. His judgments, if you think about it in that way, his judgments are the way in which we come to understand the seriousness of sin. Right? Right? We see his judgments upon sin and we're like, wow, sin is really serious. Really serious. We come to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin because of the judgments of God against sin. Even church discipline, right? Church discipline. It's how we come to see the extent of our own bent towards sin and rebellion, isn't it? Those warnings of God and the fear that church discipline is to cause, like 1 Timothy chapter 5, we see our own bent towards sin and we should fear the Lord and cling more tightly to him. 
It's how we learn to hate sin as he hates sin. It's how we learn to love and to cherish and to treasure holiness as he does. It's how we cultivate gratitude for him having saved us from our sin. It's how we cultivate love for him having overcome sin through the blood of his cross. And it's his love. It's his love for us that then constrains or compels us to judge thus that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. There's much that those judgments of God teach us. They cause us to cling more tightly to the Lord. They cause us to endure and to persevere. And Jesus, our Lord, the one who knows your works, he says to you, I know you. I know you. I know you haven't been led astray by this error. I know you haven't been enticed or seduced by that Jezebel. You haven't known the depths of Satan, as they say. You've not plumbed the wickedness of these deceivers. I know you love the truth. He might say to to those who remain, those who've not been given over to this error in Thyatira, I know you love me. I know you love my word. I know you love the brothers. So I place no other burden upon you. You see that? I place no other burden upon you, but this hold fast what you have until I come. Do not stray from the truth. Do not stray from me. I'm calling you to do what you're already doing. It's essentially what the Lord is saying to them. They are persevering in the midst of Jezebel and those that follow her. They're persevering, they're enduring. The Lord says, I'm calling you to do what you're already doing. Continue to keep my commandments. My commandments are not burdensome. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Follow me. And he says, verse 26, and he who overcomes... That's present active participle. It's literally he who is overcoming. The one who is overcoming and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as also I have received from my father. That's a direct quote of Psalm 2, and it's pointing to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is already ruling. Psalm 2 says this, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord says, I know that you are being mercilessly persecuted by the nations. He could have said that to Ephesus, to Pergamos, to Thyatira. I know you're being mercilessly persecuted by the nations, but hold fast. If you hold fast, the Lord says, when I return, the tables will be turned. When I return, the tables will be turned. I'm going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and you will share in my victory, right? Our victory is the Lord's victory. The Lord's victory is our victory. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. The morning star is Jesus Christ himself. Interesting statement here in verse 28. He promises to give us the blessing of his presence by the spirit. He does that through the great commission. Remember the end of Matthew chapter 28. Obey me, right? Go, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you. It's a promise of his presence. Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Here, it's a promise of his presence with us. He is the morning star. 
Revelation chapter 22, listen to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus Christ himself is the morning star. This is the one who has been prophesied. This prophecy of the morning star goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. We don't have time to turn there. Listen with me. Genesis 49 verse 10. Jacob's dying words. Listen. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That scepter, referring to the morning star, a prophecy of Balaam, Numbers chapter 24, listen. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult, all the sons of Seth, as it were, all the sons, as it were, of the wicked nations that oppose him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. This is the word of God to us, as much as it was the word of God to the church at Thyatira. This is a word for us to cling to the Lord in faith. This is a word to us to be faithful faithful in dealing with sin and error in our midst. This is a word to us, brothers and sisters, not to compromise with the sin and error of this age, not to compromise with the idolatry of this age that even now in our age also manifests itself in sexual immorality, doesn't it? Right? Sexual, sexual immorality. Eating things offered to idols, just another way in our day of saying compromising with idolatry, compromising with worldliness, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says essentially that same kind of statement. Peter says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the, what? Morning star arises in your hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of the Spirit among us. We were formerly, formerly blind. We were formerly darkened in our heart by sin and transgression. And now we have the light of the morning star shining in our hearts. The presence of the morning star in our midst. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Certainly not in the painted faces of this world's lying Jezebels, Right? but in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast what we have until he comes. Do not tolerate the world in this church and join me in laboring, laboring, laboring to love the Lord and to love the Lord's people by keeping sin and error out, right? Let's be faithful to the Lord in our practice of discipline. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We're grateful to you for uh, this example that we have in the church at Thyatira, both good and bad both in the ways that you've commended Thyatira and in the ways that you've rebuked her, reproved her. Uh, We learn from that and we need that instruction, Lord. Uh, Please help us to consider our own commitment, our own resolve to a biblical practice of church discipline. 
uh, our own resolve against compromise with this world, against compromise with uh, Jezebel and idolatry, against compromise of doctrinal uh, error or errors in our practice. Lord, I pray that we be faithful to you uh, to deal with those things in our midst. And we don't do that. We can't do that, Lord, in our own strength. We need the strength of your spirit. Uh, please expose error where you find it, Lord. Uh, you've been so faithful us, to us to do that over the years, and you've allowed us, Lord, the opportunity to see it for what it is and to deal with it in our midst. We're very grateful uh, to you for that, and we trust you. We know that you, Lord, are the one who searches the hearts. Uh, we cannot look on the heart. You are the one who, who intimately knows all of our circumstances, and so we trust you to reveal those things to us, Lord, and I pray that you'd find us faithful to deal with them as you've called us to. We love you. We thank you. Help us by your spirit to hold fast what we have until you come and come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.